Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to keep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan, the show where everybody wants to be a Michael or a Sonny, but you know what? You got yourself a couple Fredos. Um, all right, welcome to the movie show. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And uh, yeah, we have a, uh, well, a super fun show for us, and we hope it will be for you. Um, <clears throat> we are going to be talking about well, we know he's one of my favorite actors, but he is the pinnacle, the top, the A1 sauce of of, uh, of actors when it comes to Ryan. Yeah. Um, and so I will let Ryan introduce the main subject of our show today. Well, we're talking about uh, Boston slash New York uh, stage and screen actor John Casale. John... Um, only made five movies the of course the the fun bit of trivia about him if you want to bring him up at a dinner party or something is that only in five he had a brief tv appearance in a peeping tom episode of the tv show nypd back in 1971 um and he did a short film like a festival film which i can't remember the name of it 10 years earlier in like in 1962 um but he's only in five Hollywood films. He has five main st- screen credits, and all five films were nominated for Best Picture at the Oscar Oscars. Which, but what's more significant than that, I think, is that between those five pictures, there's forty Oscar nominations. Not just that they were all nominated for Best Picture, and they're double digit. I th- believe it's twelve, eleven, or twelve acting nominations in there. Mm-hmm. So it's there it's powerhouse stuff loaded with powerhouse people he himself was never nominated for an oscar um i guess before we get going too much on him we'll do a little biography of him john was born uh she had an older sister and a younger brother he was born in revere massachusetts uh to an irish mother and an italian american father and his father was a a traveling coal wholesale salesman and was a rather domineering guy, although he wasn't home much when John and Stephen in particular, their older sister was a bit older than them, um, you know, was traveling around, but he had this, you know, interesting upbringing and, you know, just I think of it as a very old school upbringing. When you know that's same with my mom's folks. You know, my, my, my they were the same kind of thing. And he was a traveling toy salesman, and so he had this magical, you know, car full of toys and stuff that none of my 
aunts and uncles are and could play with. You know, like there was all off limits. No toys for you. Nothing for you. This is all for the other kids and Bismarck and Minot and wherever the hell I'm off to this week, you know. And it I I find I always found that funny that their lives were surrounded with this stuff that, that was off limits to them. And the, his sort of background reminded me of that. He went to study, uh, you know, he, he's like the rest of us actors or people, you know, he, he got into drama in high school and took to it. He went to study, um, uh, theater arts at Oberlin college first and then transferred back home, uh, to Boston University, and Boston University was the home of a rather renowned um, acting teacher. Uh, by, I believe his name's Peter Cass, mm-hmm. and uh, John Caselli and Olympia Dukakis were fellow students under Peter Cass at the same time. We're in a bunch of the same shows, couple uh, slackers. Yeah, and Peter had this philosophy. Olympia lays it out in this cool documentary that we're going to talk about at the end of the show in our little for further listening and viewing we don't want to tell you what it is at the top of the show because then you just could go watch that you <laughs> you go watch that what do you need us for <laughs> but um he, he, the, it, the, I, the philosophy was that you, you whatever and this and i believe this too wholeheartedly and it's probably why john is my favorite because this speaks to my soul as a performer myself and as just as a lover of theater craft and as a lover of film you know he, peter believed that what he he saw, first of all he was one of those weird professors that saw right into you whatever your vulnerabilities and whatever made you anxious like he that's what he was interested in discovering and he he found it even if you tried to hide it from him but his belief in, in technique uh, you know and they learned a lot at the in the, as being part of this program. But its core idea was that whatever it is that it makes you vulnerable, whatever it is that, you know what I mean, whatever it is that weakens you, it's your job sort of. Yeah, as that, the, the way you make the character real is to share that with us one way or another. And that is in every single one of these performances that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's that thing that you it's that thing that you try to hide from everybody externally. That thing that that scares you the most that you that maybe you dislike about yourself the most, um, not not necessarily physically, but what is it that thing that you that you have inside you that just you wish you didn't have? And he and yeah, and uh, and Cass wanted to find that and and he would and he would insist you have to find it. And you have to bring it to every character. It's part you part have of the to. curriculum. You, we're going to talk yeah. about it. You just have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and it's that's. That's great, and it's and it's really great in when the when you have the on stage. It's it's all virtually necessary if you're doing serious work. Um, in film, when the camera is your partner and it can get really close to you, and you really can play that layer that Joel just mentioned. It's not just what is it that what it's not where your vulnerabilities on your sleeve. There's this very human nature thing to. to disguise it to try and hide it to hold it back to not share it and to to have it there all the time and to be playing hiding it or rationalizing it away or mm-hmm. you know whatever the tools we all use in life to bury our vulnerabilities it, it, you know 
that's magic. I, 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 whenever I talk about a performance I really love, it usually has that extra layer to it. What is it that we're holding back? What well, watching somebody hold something back is the most interesting thing that you can, I think that you can see on screen, even if you don't know what's going yeah. on. The, I can't it, remember it, if it, it was, brings yeah. things to life in a very real way that makes the whole experience, whether you're in a superhero movie or whatever you're doing, makes it real. And he was just absolutely a master of that. John believed that that it starts with what's the character's pain, what what yeah. is what makes them hurt, what's you know, yeah, and That's everything what I was is mention built is I can't... upon that as a foundation, and it's yeah, I can't can't remember who shared that or if that was in. The in that documentary that we'll talk about, or if that was in one of the other interviews that I was uh, watching, but yeah, they were talking about, he would always, no matter what it was, it was, it was a comic character, a serious character. What is it? What is the pain? What is their pain? And, um, and how does that, how does that affect everything else that they have? How does it every drive, other drive that everything else? Yeah. And it's, yeah, and it's, it's there. It's there in every single one of these roles. It's really, really yeah. awesome. Yeah. And, and I think it was, and, and I also love, I mean, it was, um, uh, and, and Pacino talked about, uh, I think this is, this is in that documentary, but, uh, Pacino talked about, he always, he always asked questions and, and, and you know, like they, 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 everyone, he always asked questions, but he didn't necessarily have to have the answers. He asked all these questions about the character and, and about who these people are. And he didn't always have the answers. And he's like, that's okay. We just need the questions so that in that moment, you yeah, can. I don't think John articulated it quite that way. It's Al that realized the lesson was you don't have to have the answers. I think yeah. that for, for Pacino was a revelation. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think Streep is the one who says that she, she's like, yeah, he would annoy the directors and stuff because they, he would annoy they want to give him what he needs always... to move mm -hmm. on when the camera's mm -hmm. rolling and the money is yeah. ticking asking 20 questions about this situation or this particular line or whatever it's not particularly useful and so yeah. a guy like uh sydney lemay who's a very theatrical guy the way he directs films directed one of these films that's coming up you know he's his instinct is to answer the question and what al realized maybe not on the spot when all the lights were on, but he realized eventually was he don't have to, it's not about getting the right answer. It's a, mm -hmm. it's the idea that asking questions, um, opens the door to endless possibilities. And suddenly there's all these different ways of doing things and all these different ways of playing things and different, different avenues of storytelling that you, if you don't ask the questions, you wouldn't have thought a Horowitz was one of his best friends says, the playwright says is maddening, maddening <laughs> <laughs> questions after questions. His nickname in the New York theater was 20 questions. That was his nickname. Yeah. And uh, because acting with him was playing that, that parlor game all the time, but, but being willing to ask those and being willing to find all those different avenues and stuff, Pacino, Meryl Streep, they say they still carry that lesson with them. You know, that's informed their work to this day. Mm -hmm. And we'll yeah, get into that, more of the specific, like, performances and the people he worked with, all the best people, you know, to quote yeah, the Shining. Yeah, you know, and it is. It's that it's that willingness to be completely vulnerable that, you know, uh, that that is what makes him so, like, you, you, that's why you look at him. That's why you watch him. And it's also what makes you forget that he's playing a character. 
um, is, is he just sort of, he just, you know, I, I hate when we say, oh, he becomes that character. He's no longer it's a, John Cazale. It's a cliche, He's but. Afraid. But it, it, in his case, it, it really sort of is, is, is you sort of, you, you forget that someone is playing it and, and it just looks like, no, that's, that, that's just that guy. His appreciation, yeah. the, the appreciation society for him has grown through the years obviously along with the legends of those films but for a guy who's as much a part of the pop culture as he is he was a forgotten man his name was sort of forgotten and a lot of the theory behind that is because people don't remember john matter of fact i'll tell you another funny story before we launch into his movies he won he didn't win ultimately he was he won two obie awards in the same year for the revival of line that he did with richard dreyfus which when Fred Ruse saw it, ultimately got him the part of Fredo in the original Godfather film. And another, they're both Israel Horowitz plays. The other one was uh, the the Indian wants the Bronx. Wants the Bronx. And he played the Indian in that. I can't remember the name of the guy he plays in line, but he won. He Before they realized that it, he was the same guy, he had won the Obie for both of those performances. And they had to... Somebody pointed out, well, you can't do that. It's that's John Casale. He's the same guy. The New York film critics who had seen these plays and had decided that he had given the best two supporting performances of the year that they saw in New York in 1971 had voted unanimously for him twice, not knowing he was the same actor. That's that's stunning. <laughs> I mean, I don't I quite. I don't know if I'm explaining it well enough, but the impossibility of that for these critics not to know for them to, for him to have been so memorable in the show. And yet for them to have not known that it was John Casale both times is crazy. And they eventually withdrew the, uh, the line nomination and, and, and Pacino for leading character and, and Casale for uh, supporting both one for the Indian wants the Bronx and it, it's, it's just, a, that's an amazing story to me. They had to huddle together, like right before these announcements were made and pick one because somebody, somebody who knew better finally said, you guys, this is a, you know, this is the same yeah. guy, right? Is that what you yeah. mean to do? Is it like a tie? <laughs> yeah. what, how do I, when I go up there, how do I say this or whatever? It, it, that's a, I mean, that's not a legend. That's a funny thing that actually happened, but it, it's that pseudo anonymousness it's how he can be so rememberable and yet it's fredo that we remember and it's sal that we remember you know we don't yeah you don't get much of a sense of of a performance when you watch these people not in a conventional way what joel says it's real it's all so real that mm -hmm. it's it's stunning and all five of his performances are like that they're all just bring home the reality of who these cats are and a big part of that is embracing their weaknesses and embracing their vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and communicating them in a, in a believable way. He was a yeah. master at that. They called him the master second fiddle or the master sidekick, but it's what he was really a master of was, was using a character's weaknesses to, to make them utterly believable people on screen that's mm -hmm. that's a stunning achievement for anybody so yeah
Um, so yeah, so we're going to be talking, I, I sort of feel like, uh, it's, this isn't a caveat or anything. It's just a reminder, you know, we're going to be talking about five of the greatest movies, um, ever committed to celluloid. Sure. Um, but we're going to be talking about them through the lens of John Cazal and his performances and everything. So yeah, there's going to be the- lots about these movies that we're not going to talk about. So I don't want people to like go, oh, this is the episode where they're going to talk about The Godfather. No, we're not. We're going to talk about the character of Fredo as portrayed uh, by, by by John Cazal. So, um, yeah, so I, that, I sort, sort of feel like I want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're not, these aren't going to be deep dives into these movies. Yeah. We are going to be talking about um, this one performer and what makes the, his performance so uh, so memorable, so spectacular, so uh, rich. The good um, things so, is all save one of these, although it certainly has a, a really hot repu- uh, um, reputation as well. But all save one of them really are part of the the like I say, the pop culture, they're, they're <coughs> very distinct Excuse things me. from their eras that are sort of <laughs> iconic and very memorable. So hopefully, even if you haven't seen them all, there'll be something. And ho- we'll try and keep the super actorly talk to a minimum, but it's hard not to talk about the craft of acting and storytelling w- w- whilst talking about him because he was he was a true craftsman. You know, a lot of the guys from this era, Hoffman and some of the big heavy hitters were were... Uh, which you call method actors and yeah. and John had a method but he wasn't a method actor he was an academic and he sort of came he, he was a questioner and he liked dis- discussing things and um yeah. gotta say that's one of the things I like most about him yeah I mean that, yeah it was he, he would he would do the trick approach. of kind of staying in character and we'll talk a little bit of that when we get to dog day where Again, Sydney being a more theatrical style film director, that film was a very theatrical sort of experience, which we'll talk about. Whereas er, early on here, he sort of kept his head down and and I, he enjoyed surprising people, you know. And mm-hmm. that's the word that came up time and time again when you hear his peers and his friends talk about the experience of being on stage with him or being in a film with him is how surprised they were, how they couldn't have anticipated what they got based on what was on the page. And even when they knew they cast the right guy and Ruse said, as soon as he saw him in line, he knew that's the, that's the guy they'd seen every young actor in Hollywood for all the different roles in the Godfather. It was this massive months long casting thing. Uh, it's, they talk about it in the Robert Evans doc and stuff and everything that's written or shown about the Godfather. There's a great scene where there's a great scene where James Kahn is reading the Michael at the wedding scenes, you know, because they, he was a more mm-hmm. famous guy than Pacino. So they wanted the big star to be the, the hero of the thing. And of course that was totally the wrong choice and thank God it worked out the way it did. But yeah. He's, um, he was surprising. He surprised people, and that's neat. Not shocking you or playing tricks on you, but just shocking you out of your comfort zone so that you're mm-hmm. always trying to keep up with them and always trying to try different things. Um, Gene Hackman, who just a few weeks ago we were talking about what a just a horrendous interviewer or interviewee he is. You know, people say, well, there's a handful of them, Harrison Ford and stuff. There's some, like... 
people who, when you're talking to them, are even if they're trying to help sell the film, they're sort of obstinate naturally. De Niro is definitely another one. Um, to hear Hackman talk about John Casale, because it, it's he's still very like he's not letting you have much, but it's for him to come first of all for him to come out and do that is a big deal, and then the way he does it. And the admiration that he shows is really intense. And a lot of that is just the fact that John would surprise him. John would take things to a next level when he least expected that to happen and that it made Mm -hmm. everything better. And that's, that's the second biggest theme. The biggest theme certainly is vulnerability and how it shows itself on screen and how that makes something real. That's, that's his greatest trick. The next, uh, the other thing is that, Always, always doing something different, always trying something, no matter how inappropriate or ridiculous, always asking those questions and opening those doors and how that made everybody around him step up their game time and time and time again in every single one of these films. Even even the very top leading men of their and ladies of their era, he made a better actor and that they all say that. And that's Mm -hmm. pretty remarkable as well. So. So let's jump into it. Let's jump into uh, the fir- his first film. First film, right out of the gate. First time he's ever been on camera. Yeah. And that's, an, oh, I, I, yeah, again, and, and I don't want to harp on this, but there is a huge difference between stage acting and film acting. Yeah. And the fact that he um, went back and forth uh, so seamlessly and was able to, to um, you, you know, use his sort of his methodology of acting to, to, uh, uh, and apply it, you know, so that his very first film is the Godfather um, heard of it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and so he's, yeah, he's going up against some, some you're not going against, but like he's on camera with some of the best at the time. He's sharing the screen with James Caan and Marlon Brando and, mm-hmm. and Al Pacino. And I mean, <laughs> Robert Duvall, yeah. Diane Keaton, very first time and, we see Fredo in The Godfather, he's he's it's this brilliant thing. Diane Keaton, who's great, she, she sells this because she plays along with him. He stumbles mm-hmm. drunk up to their table yeah. at at her wedding, and and she, she's you can tell she has no idea what he's gonna do. He gives her like a kiss, and then and uh, he like comes in really close yeah. and he's like really uncomfortably close and then he gives her just this little peck on the cheek which had to have been a relief because who knows what he was going to do none Mm -hmm. of us have ever seen this guy before michael pacino's line is uh this is this is my brother this is my older brother fredo and he does this thing which is not in the script where he introduces michael to Kay at the table he's like yeah this is my brother mike and then he looks at her and then he seems to like be catching up to what's happening and he goes oh so this is your friend right (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it's this, the way, I, this relationship, first of all, the pacino Casale relationship is, you know, just. Yeah, yeah it's one of those magical things, yeah. Yeah, they're partners and they're, they're, they're in almost every scene together in these first three films. And so, or the first and, sorry, third and fourth film. But either way, mm-hmm. it, that that relationship is really, really important. And it starts here where you see Michael, Michael's amused by this. He knows Fredo's harmless. He's amused that his girlfriend is 
freaking out. What's going on? And, you know, Diane Keaton doesn't freak out. She giggles. Yeah. That's if you watch her in any of her movies. When she gets uncomfortable, she starts giggling and cackling. That's how she reacts to stuff. And it's a beautiful piece of real magic moment. A lot of people say that this kind of there's so much happening at this wedding that this little introduction really doesn't seem like it's much. And it isn't. But it is. The way Michael humors him, the way he, you know, the way he treats him like the, it, it's affectionate, right. but he's kind of like, this is my clown brother, Fredo, you know? Yeah. And he kind of condescends to him whilst humoring him at the same time. It establishes that hierarchy without having to, you know, it, it sets up what's coming uh, in terms of the family dynamic and the family ranking uh, yeah. without ever, without, without a single word. And it's a, tiny thing we've spent yep. already 10 times longer talking about it than it actually happened ha what actually happens on screen that's for you bill you can have sometimes the explanation <laughs> is 10 times longer than the thing itself because sometimes it is. a really great actor just having fun with a, what is a fun moment packs in so much meaning into the thing mm -hmm. and uh, that that comes from the third sort of more unsung characteristic of john which is that is that it's not method acting. It, he it gets it. He wants to understand the whole project and he wants to get fundamentally what his little part of it is and then maximize yeah. every second he can with meaning with that, you know? Yeah. And this is, this is a classic moment like that where you just, you know, you get it. Yeah. He, he, he understands the larger story that needs to be told and, and, is is using his time on camera to maximize that storytelling um and and his part in it it's not look at me and the cool thing that i'm coming up with right. and my character it is i need to serve this story and here's what's here's how i can do it in this tiny 45 second scene pacino and, and, yeah, and uh john although they weren't fast friends back in these days but they it helped that they knew each other they were both messengers for standard oil in New York while yeah. they were struggling actors. And, and uh, of course, by this point, they'd also been in the Horowitz play, which was really was renowned in, in its moment. So they, you know, they knew each other pretty good, but they, they had always known each other before either of them had a lick of success. They were aware of each other and then they were kind of uh, friendly acquaintances with each other. And then they were partner scene partners together. And it just, that, that brotherhood lives on the screen in this little moment. And it's important because yeah. uh, honestly, you go through a lot of movie before you see Fredo and Michael in a scene together again. And by that point, yeah. they're both been radically transformed. Um, but the best, well, maybe the best, the big moment, the coming out moment for for Fredo and for John Casal, probably in general, because it, it really is unexpected. Uh, we do get a sense of who he is, but the, this big event occurs in his life. And this is, uh, and it, it, it strips everything away. We're left with the absolute core of what this guy is in this moment. Uh, Pauly, you won't see him no more is, is called in sick. He's, uh, basically, Don Corleone's body man and bodyguard. And we find out later he, there's some duplicity to him, but uh, that's a fun story too for the 
who was going to be Polly and how that was all going to go down, but we have to save that. for. That'll later. be in the Godfather. That'll dash. be in the Godfather saga deep dive, <laughs> which will be, yeah. I figure that'll be the April, May, June and July episodes of some year where we actually Probably, just yeah. break down every single second of the Godfather. <laughs> um, <laughs> and relish it with glee and going, yay. <laughs> I mean, right. If we can do, uh, how many shows did we do for V? Five? <laughs> six, month and a half. Uh, six shows on V. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, you know, so that's why, that's why the Godfather, like, we're like, uh, we'll just keep that in our back pocket. If we ever need three months of shows, we'll just have that one. That's also. true. Um, that's true. Polly didn't come to work today. So Fredo is, you know, Vito's like, Looking around, Brando is this great. He's got all those great yeah. moments in The Godfather, and Fredo's like, uh, Polly, I don't, I don't mind getting the car, Pop. It's okay, you know. Polly, Polly's a nice kid, and he's just sweet and nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, what happens is, and it's huge spoiler alert for The Godfather. Well, if you haven't seen The Godfather at this point, you know it's it, sorry. You, you go watch it, and then you'll you know, and then you'll appreciate John Cazale better. So. But, Pause the, pause uh, but there's an assassination the attempt. Very famous the appearance of the oranges. You know, oranges always spell doom for our characters when they appear in the Godfather films. Um, Fredo's the driver. He's armed. He's supposed to be protecting his dad in his own neighborhood out in front of his own business. You know, he really is safe here. But mm-hmm. because of some stuff that's happened in the plot, they there's an assassination attempt on him. They shoot him five times, six times. Um, yeah. And... Fredo comes running around the corner and he does this thing with it. He like can't trying to grab his gun and yeah, and flies he, all, uh, he can't even hang on to it. It's he's not prepared for this moment. He's not a bodyguard. He's not even a gangster. I don't know what he is. Um, but what he's reduced to with his dad lying on the sidewalk is this terrified little boy. It's hard to explain, but it's miraculous when it happens. Richard Dreyfus mm-hmm. says, you know, you don't, this isn't correct. This is Dreyfus, perhaps waxing metaphorical, but it's still an interesting thing that he says. It's worth repeating. He says, we don't see his eye. He's in the movies and all the scenes. He's in the background of all this stuff, but you don't really see his eyes until this moment. And then when you do see him, you can, you, you never stop seeing them again, whether it's in this movie or all the other movies. Casali's puppy dog eyes that have all this pain and fear and shame and guilt in them, like all that's in his eyes at all times. And he just sits there. He's got the gun like under one finger and it's dangling from his finger. Mm -hmm. And you just got, you know, uh, Brando is laying there lifelessly. He's not moving and he doesn't know what to do. He's not touching him. He's not going for help. All he does is plop down on the sidewalk, like a little, like a frightened little child and cries. And the scene right before the scene cuts away, he, say, he says, Papa! Like he wants him desperately to come back to life and for this not to have happened. And yeah. it's it just takes your breath away. This is the scene where Marlon Brando, the godfather in the movie that's named after him, gets shot. And it's absolutely 100% Fredo's scene. <laughs> and there's no question about that. By the time it's over, mm-hmm. it's like, how did he become the star of this moment? Because it's so real and so amazing. And even though the violence is really 
super well choreographed and there's that great shot like above the car when you see the, just the, the choreography and the bodies moving mm-hmm. around. But it's it's Fredo's childlike reaction to it and and as good as his introduction is at the wedding, which I think is quite brilliant, this is this is the moment. This is the moment yeah. where you're like, this dude is you're not even thinking it at the time. You have to think about it later, you know, when it's time to write the review or to look back on what you experienced or to examine the legend of the Godfather. Because in the moment, you just see this raw thing that's real and true. And it's not what you, it's just what John is. It's not what you expect at all. And yet it, that specificity in performance, yeah. it makes it so real and so true. And it just knocks me out. I, right. It's it just knocks me out. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't believe it when I see it. Every time I see it, I I can't look away. We talk about I don't do this anymore because I don't know anyone who does. Other than Michael, I don't know anyone who does this anymore. But he's always Michael's always like it's one of those things. Although he has nine thousand of these things, so I don't know how he ever gets anything <laughs> else done. It's one of those where if I come across it on TV, I have to sit and watch the whole thing. Well. <laughs> That's not really true of anything for me or never was. But The Godfather is one thing where like, even if it's kind of on in the background, when this moment comes and it's not because it's a shootout or it's exciting because it's because Brando plays it great too. Brando knows it's going down just based on the sound of a couple footsteps. Like you get how this guy's mm-hmm. lasted this long. Um, he does. There's not enough to save him, but he acts like right away. Yeah. Um, but Fredo's poor little kid crying for his papa in the street with a pistol in his hand. And it's, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get a whole bunch. We're going to get some more of that uh, in, in, in the sequel Godfather too. It's uh, uh, a lot more of that. Um, Yeah, it is. It is tremendous. Um, Let's uh, let's move. So after the Godfather, let's move on. Um, well, I don't think you the, can. I think you have to skip to the Vegas super douche scene. I don't think you can. Skip oh my that god! I, why? Oh my god! Yeah, of course, of course. Yes. You're also supposed to ask me two questions at the end of each movie. By oh the way. yeah, okay. That. Yes, but, uh, okay, but I first off, bring that up. First off, that when Don Vito five shots and he's still alive. That's spoiler alert for mm-hmm. Godfather. Now you're finding out that he was shot, assassinated, and lived through it somehow. Um when they're bringing him home, they're sort of running down the whole story with them. And, and, uh, and, uh, through the protection of Don, whoever out in Las Vegas, you know, we're going to send Fredo out there. And, and again, this is one line. I- I'm going to learn the casino business. <laughs> <laughs> and the way his eyes are darting around mm-hmm. to see if everyone, if that's meeting with everyone's approval, like it's his only line in this whole major sequence of events. It sets up this future scene, but it, it, I don't yeah. understand, Joel, and this is the, my wonder, and I, it's why I'm so in awe of him. How can he do so much in one little line and have it not be up like absurdly overdone and overripe? Yeah. I don't know how. That's the magic. That's the thing every actor wants. They want every second on screen and on stage to be memorable and meaningful, and yet, and yet you can't cross the line where I don't know what anchors him to reality so that we accept that sort of huge thing from him. Mm-hmm. That's the magic and it's the magic formula. And if I could do it, I'd be, I'd have Oscars over here on my shelf because it, 
I strive for that all the time, but that uh, he just it's one line. I'm going to learn the casino business. It's perfection. Yeah. And then later, when a lot has happened, <laughs> right? Much later in The Godfather, uh, he is out in Vegas, and this whole scene is—I don't know how to explain it. It's it, everything again. It's everything. Uh, Michael and and um, Duval's character Tom show up in Vegas to make this Vegas deal. They're going to buy their partner in this one casino they share in Vegas out. Mo Green played great by uh, Alex Rocco. And, and Fredo's been his mentor, if you will, or his, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the relationship is. You get the idea that it, it's been a little weird. Um, but he's got this whole thing set up. It's, he's got this polka band. And polka he's got this band. Whole, Table full of hookers, yeah, exactly, or showgirls or whatever we'll call them. Yeah, or yeah. But it's this party. Fredo's opens up the door and then he comes walking in the room and (laughs) Yeah, what is he doing? He's dancing kind of, but what he's really doing is like conducting the band somehow. It's the it's crazy. Watch it. It's the greatest thing you'll ever see. And and it's that it's that turn when he turns, he's like, huh? Michael? Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah, it's, it's it was that. all this guy's idea. Like he, he yeah. he's not. What is he? He's still. What's great about it is he's still the same guy, even though he's this completely different guy than we saw earlier in the movie. Yeah, he's just a total dork and a, kind of an asshole. And you're like, you know, where's Fredo? But Fredo's there. It, this whole thing, he's trying to impress his brother. He's trying to be the big brother, which is something he never gets to be with Michael. Their big brother, Sonny, spoiler alert for The Godfather, is gone. And this is it. These are the brothers that are left, or the three people in the scene. And Michael, again, tries to soften it, but he's like, I, you know, I don't get rid of them, get rid of the band, get rid of the girls. I don't, I, I'm only here for a day. I'm tired from the flight. Like he just, Pacino just yeah. breaks it all down. And yeah, it's not. It's not mean. It's like this is not. I this is not good right now. You're yeah. my brother, and I love you. He says that to him several, several times throughout <laughs> the series. Yes. You're my brother, and I love you. And there's always a but coming after that. Just the way he says it. Pacino's pretty great in The Godfather too, as you might be aware. Um, but it's the disappointment that he has, and then the way he sort of kicks into this. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with him. Like, his his trying to save face so desperately is so pathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, and that this whole scene plays like that, and it's an up and down for him. Uh, yeah, and the, like, I, and then it gets to a point where even like because he he he's so uh, not in control, he lashes out, and he's like, "Get out of here!" And he's like, yeah. starts screaming at the people to leave, and it's you know, it, it and then kind of comes. Ah, yeah, it, he's all over the place. Uh, Rocco to, comes yeah. into the scene and they pitch this deal and there's this big conflict and apparently Fredo's been taking advantage of the waitresses and uh, uh, the character Mo Green's been slapping him around a little bit. It's it's this and it, again it's this mortifying thing from Fredo's perspective. This is really a Michael moment, but he's like, "You slap my brother around in public? What's this I hear about that?" And you could tell these guys are these guys are gangsters. They're titans. And Fredo's, hey, no, it's just a misunderstanding. Like he's trying to, <laughs> at every turn, he's trying to like take Mo's side, and you know, he, he's the great line after Mo leaves the room after all his threats and stuff, and and he says, Michael, you do not come to Las Vegas and speak to a man like Mo Green like that. 
And he's not even on screen for half that line. And yet the line is, it's amazing. And mm -hmm. that's where the, that's where the big, the signature moment comes. Fredo, you're my brother and I love you. But don't ever take sides against the family again. And watch, we've already seen, I mean, it's already been a mountain of humiliation and pain and failure, this whole scene for Fredo. Watch him in that moment. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it breaks your heart. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's screwing cocktail waitresses two at a time. He's been a total asshole. He's lining up these hookers to get, you know, he's got this stupid band. He's just acting like a despicable person. And at the end of all of it, he breaks your heart. <laughs> yeah. It's. Yeah. You still, you still find that. Sympathy, that empathy. Okay, so then, uh, what we what would you say is his signature moment? Then, in well, the I saved it. I skipped over it cleverly so that because yes, I'm not I sure know. what my answer is going to be to that. To all these, I hope I get inspired. But for this, the signature moment is when it's right before we cross fade to Sicily and Michael's adventures in hiding in Sicily after some stuff he's done. The last thing we see is Fredo coming into Vito's bedroom at home in his this one of those big hospital beds he's still got the iv and everything and he just comes and goes over to the chair and with his hands like between his knees he sits in this chair and just sits by his father just sits it's yeah. wordless it's it says everything about him that you could possibly need to know it's it's glorious and uh what was the other question? Oh, uh, what, where, like, let's, uh, what is a moment or where does he bring out the best in another actor? Well, it's, it's really, it's in that Vegas scene. It, it, yeah. it, 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 because you see, you, you're already seeing this to some degree, but you really through Fredo, you really, and this is true of the whole series. You see Michael's dark side come out. You see that even though he is his brother and he loves him and he does, he, his, his, intolerance with him grows and grows and grows throughout these films. And this is where it really starts because Michael's our hero of the story at this point, And we're really wanting him to succeed, but it, it's, it's weird. It's weird how incredible, like it's weird how in, much of a foil he is for him in that moment while still being really, really true to this character. Yeah. It's, it's huge and broad and clownish and yet it's very real and vulnerable and amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. and you see Michael's reaction to it. You see Rocco's reaction to it. Uh, Duvall's, they're all on edge. And Fredo, now that he's speaking up and trying to be this new awesome gangster guy, just ramps up the tension every time he opens his mouth in that scene. And it, it works like a charm. It's a brilliant yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, all right. So our next film uh, is uh, another Francis Ford Coppola film. It is my um, boy. Is this the first film that is making its third appearance <laughs> on, <laughs> on the movie show with Joel and Ryan? Maybe. Um, but uh, it is the conversation that we talked about a few weeks ago with Gene Hackman. It uh, obviously we talked about a, it in the uh, 70s in conspiracy. The, thrillers. Yep. Yeah. Episode, which was number two, I want to say. Maybe it's number so. one. I can't remember. Go back and listen. It's back there someplace. The official it rankings, is. if that matters to you. Um, 
yeah, and yeah, this this, this a, will be a little easier because even though he's only a he's as big a part of the conversation as he is a part of the Godfather, but in both films he's not really in either of them very much. Um it, he plays this uh recordist surveillance expert. He plays Gene Hackman, the 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 main character of the thing is is a guy who records this conversation of these two I think we get the idea even when we first hear the conversation that they're two lovers and they're they're sneaking around um and through these brilliant techniques they sort of record that and and John Casale he's second build in the film but he's barely in it he plays Gene Hackman's second fiddle at his little surveillance yeah. company um one of his tech guys yeah, who's one of the guys yeah. running one of the remote mics that's recording this conversation? They and he's actually later in the film. He it's in a brilliant scene and a purely expositional scene. He explains how they did it, and that's a really really fun. That's a really for it's a really fun scene for old school uh, audiophiles to listen to. How they we see it, and then he explains it halfway through the movie, mm -hmm. and it's very, very cool. But mm -hmm. the best bits of it are when they're putting this, they've recorded this from how many angles, and they got all these tapes, and they've got to sync them all up together. And when they do that, it turns into one big, long thing, where you can listen to the whole conversation. And while they're doing that, <laughs> I, I don't know what, Stanley, the assistant, he played two guys named Stanley, he played Fredo twice. I don't know what that's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and Sal, if you want to know, if you want to round it all out, there's a Sal in there too. We'll definitely talk about him. Um, Stanley, the assistant, he's just, he's just making small talk, but it, and it's Hackman and him. And I, I don't know that he's being particularly annoying, but because I don't think really think he is. I think he's just talking. He's just like, well, I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder what, uh, this is the dumbest conversation I've ever heard. And he's got all this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, and Hackman's like, "Look, would you just be quiet?" And it just, yeah, it's 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 just workplace combo. It's yeah. that's all it is. This is just two guys at work going through, and it just so happens that they're going through all of this stuff. Uh, you know, going through these these tapes, and they're you and, know, there's right. And this is John's big scene, really, but it's really all about Hackman's character. And this is you know, this I can I think I can pretty much pre-answer the you know where does he bring out the best in another actor? I mean. He, Hackman was reticent to go too far with this scene. He, he wanted, you know, it's early in the movie. He wants to keep this guy grounded somewhat. And, you know, but Coppola clearly wanted more. And mm -hmm. Casale, very famously, at least so the legend says, under, understood that bit of direction and felt it would be easier for him to deliver on that than it was for Hackman. So he kept he keeps poking him. And even poking though he's him. not yep. doing anything, he just keeps poking him. Oh, as you say, uh, you know, Jesus, what about it? He's like, Hey, don't say that. And then he, well, and Christ. the very next line, then, yeah, for Christ's well, sakes. Christ sakes. <laughs> it, it's hard to explain, but. That's <laughs> ah, so good. Yeah. And Hackman again. Yeah. And Hackman in terms of, you know, not wanting to take it too far, but needing to give a little more, his reaction to that is it's just like, just don't no. I, it really bothers me. Hackman, you know, and it, Hackman doesn't fall into the trap of going too far with it. It it yeah. He becomes more vulnerable. He becomes more open. And this is a guy that the character in the conversation. This is something he does not want to be in any way. Mm -hmm. Fighting against sharing anything with anybody about anything. He's just the most private guy in the history of movies, truly. And mm -hmm. 
and <laughs> John gets it out of him. And then when he finally bites, you know, bites his nose off a little bit, again, we get that great, you just see that sense, it's not, it's not deep-seated pain and, 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 and disappointment this time, but it's this, it's this failure, it's this defeat. Yeah. Where he just is, uh, you know, it's, it's always going to be like this. You can see the sort of realization of that. He, and it, it pays off brilliantly in this scene where they go to this surveillance convention, which is just fantastic sort of, it's not super plot related, but it's the centerpiece of the whole thing is this convention followed by this party back at their office afterwards. And at the convention, it's, uh, who's the, I can't remember the actor's name. Um, talking about the, the guy who, uh, his competitor, it's, he's really important in it. Alan Garfield. Yeah. Alan Garfield. Alan Garfield plays this guy who's the competitor and his team has the, the, the maroon blazers and they're all have these uniforms and he's got all these little gizmos and things that he's trying to patent and sell. And of course, you know, Hackman's like, yeah, I, I build all my own equipment. Like he's just not having it. He's well, can I get your picture with our thing? And he's like, and he's kind of weasels away and squirms. He doesn't want his picture taken, but there's this great moment where Garfield, they're interacting and Garfield's great in it too. Cause he sort of kisses Hackman's ass, but he, he also, also pokes at him in some really rather harsh ways and that there's not a relationship there so it's not as meaningful to us but there's a ton of plot and a ton of history that's revealed in that Kasali he says Stanley Stanley come over here and watch the booth I want to talk with a guy here and it Kasali comes around the corner wearing the blazer he's gone to the other team he's skipped to the other side and Hackman's reaction to it is is what is really important. His sort of, he's gobsmacked by this sight, mm-hmm. but Casali's kind of, and they cut to him twice, which is a weird thing to do. I don't know why Coppola does that just because he wanted it both ways, probably, but they cut to his looking at him. And the first time it's kind of like, yeah, I'm doing this. That's right. What are you going to do mm-hmm. about it? And the second time it's, it's your fault. You yeah. know, I don't want to be yeah, wearing but, the blazer yeah. and being bossed around by this asshole, but it's like, it's both. It's all of mm-hmm. it. It's very, very cool. And Hackman comes up to him and he's like, Hey man, I'm I think I'm being followed by this guy. This, you can't leave me now. It's again, it's, that's revelatory to see this character saying all this stuff. It just comes blurting out of him. And He's like, you, we both know you're never... He's like, I'll show you how some of the stuff works. He's like, we both know you're never going to show me how this stuff works. Come on, you're just lying to me. But when he when he shows that he's scared, when he acts, when Hackman, and this is his tragic flaw, when he actually opens up a piece of himself to Stanley, Stanley wakes up and he's like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, if you're going to stand here and beg me, sure, I, I won't go. I won't, you know. He re, it's, it's a really neat... Yeah connection there are isn't anyone else in the movie who hackman's character is going to open up about this his fears that are going on but this this one guy and he's only really he's in this party scene but he's really only in the very background of the party scene he's not really part of the movie's finale at all but there is this great moment like i said he explains all the stuff and then they playing these tapes and they're talking about all this stuff and alan garfield's character says he says, for Christ's sakes, man, you blah, 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 blah. And it gets really quiet and awkward. And uh, John, like with perfect comic timing, and yet in a moment that doesn't get a laugh because he always 
plays stuff slightly beyond the laugh. We'll get to a really brilliant one later, but he says, he doesn't like it when you say Christ's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. It's so good. I love it. It's so good. What do you think? Is that, is that his signature moment? Well, that's that his film? whole performance in the movie. You know, his, yeah. I, his signature moment is, is that is, is those two looks. It's weird that there's two of them, but it's that it's when he passes in the, that's in what the I was blazer. getting to. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing how much is happening there between two great actors that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So much meaning. So, and the scene obviously where it makes a guy better is really every time. And it's only Heckman that he really interacts with his, his being a sympathetic witness at that party when they're pranking our hero and really kind of coming after him is really powerful because he's the one guy in the room who's on his side clearly. And that's, that's powerful because he didn't say anything. and didn't really do anything. He's not in a position to do anything. But it, those other two scenes, particularly that first one where he just gets. Yeah. It's written yeah. that way. It's a really smart script, the conversation. So it's written in a way where this is the guy that draws our hero out. Of all the people, you got Terry Gar as his fling and you got all you got Garfield coming after him hard. You got uh, Harrison Ford stalking him. Yep. Harrison Ford plays Mr. Smithers in the conversation. If you haven't seen the conversation, you really have to see it. It's it. You need to see it yeah, to believe it's, it. It's amazing. But it it's it's Casali's character, and it's that relationship that there's not a lot of trust there, but there's just enough trust there, just this much more than there is with anybody else that gives us a window into who these people are. Otherwise I don't know that we would have it exactly. So mm -hmm. it's a gem. Um, yeah. And so Coppola good. says it, he says, this guy on the page isn't much. And we knew that. And I knew that yeah. if I put John in it, he would make him a full blown character without me really having to do any work as a writer. And it's, it's kind of because it was written in a hurry and that is exactly what happens. He's, he was exactly yeah. right. Yep. Um, so we, uh, so then we get the sequel after the conversation, we get the sequel to, right. um, <laughs> the, one of the greatest films and, um, you know, arguably you get an even greater film. Um, a lot of people do uh, argue that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. these are all tied together. You know, the conversation yeah. happened because the Godfather was such a big hit and to, mm. to, Part of the part of the conditions of doing a sequel to the big massive hit yeah. Godfather was that Paramount would give him this little budget to do this much smaller film in between. Mm -hmm. And once he had wrapped on that, he, they because they technically both came out in the same year, which is crazy. Yeah. Because um, Godfather Two was a big deal and a a big production, as you can imagine. And Fredo, unlike The Godfather, is front and center in, in The Godfather 2. To the point yeah. that I can't sit here, or it'll take me a couple hours. I can't do what I've been doing with these where I talk about every moment like I would like to. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Godfather it's 2 too much. Is, he's, he's is, really... is more Fredo. Yeah, there's a lot of Fredo. Right. We get, we get great Fredo. Yes. Uh, um, like the Godfather, Godfather Two starts out with a big ceremony. Now they're out on Lake Tahoe, and uh, Anthony, Michael's firstborn son, is having his was it his first communion? Yeah. And 
and it's an excuse for one of these big gatherings, just like the other movie started with the with Connie's wedding reception. And it's a great scene, goes on and on and on, takes up the first 40 minutes of the movie practically. And Fredo's got this sort of trophy wife who's getting drunk and causing all kinds of problems <laughs> and embarrassing him. And, uh, he, you know, she's like dancing and <laughs> drunk and slipping. And he's like, he tries to get rid of her. It's just, it's so sad. I just don't know how to explain it. Poor Fredo. He tries mm-hmm. to get rid of her, and she's like, oh, I know. you. you she's like, I just dance in. He's like, no, you're not, it's not just dancing's one thing. You're falling all over the floor. That's what he says. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I know why you're upset, because he's a real man or whatever. And she's saying this, like, in front of everybody. This is ultimate humiliation. And you see Michael whisper to Rocco, his, one of his guys, one of his security guys, I guess we'll call him. And he, Rocco comes over, and this is so, so touching. He's like... Michael says, if you can't deal with this, I have to. Yeah. <laughs> what is Fredo saying? I think you better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. defeat and mortification and shame and embarrassment. And they just pile it on this guy. And so Rocco does this thing where he, you can't, if you can't see me, he does this thing where he's like, he touches his cheek like, I got it. I got, I'll handle it. Don't worry, but mm-hmm. I get it. And he just drags her off into the crowd, kicking and screaming. Um, And, you know, Fredo comes, sits back down at the table. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't control her. And and, uh, Michael says again, what does he say? He says, Fredo, you're my brother. Brother, and I love you. He doesn't say I love you, but he he says, uh, you never have to apologize to me, is what he says. Uh, what cold, bitter, ironic words those become later. <laughs> um, there's an assassination attempt that takes place on Michael and his basically his family's life later that evening. Um, there's this labyrinthian, you know, plots all plotting with Michael. It's all plotting with Vito. It's something else, but with Michael, it's all figuring it out and being one step ahead and. Uh, you know, keeping your friends close and your enemies closer and all that, that line is from this particular film. Uh, and Fredo's, he's sort of a pin to the old world, the way things used to be. We see Connie and she's sort of destroyed and she's this cynical, self-destructive person. And uh, Tom is like kind of resentful and at odds and being shut out from the crime part of the crime family. And the marriage is sinking, and all this bad stuff is happening in the modern part of Godfather Two. And the mm-hmm. the guy that really connects us back in, in a key way with the old days, the guy who's sort of unchanged a little bit, is Fredo. And it's this big deal that has to do with Cuba on the eve of the Cuban Revolution. It's a really great movie. There's a ton of stuff in it. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about the other half of the movie, which is De Niro and his first Oscar-winning performance playing young Vito coming up in turn-of-the-century New York. And the way those things c- contrast and compare with each other, it's very, very powerful. But there's a scene in Cuba that's my favorite Fredo scene, I think, in the movie. It's hard to say. It's so many good ones. But um, they're... He's brought this, what is it, $2 million in a suitcase. There's <laughs> mm-hmm. a great scene where the the bellboy tries to take his bag from him and he, right. he gets in a tub. 
<laughs> he can't his whole it's just this big ball of tension he's been carrying two million dollars around in a briefcase for like a day and you can tell he's just freaked that somebody's gonna come take it it's a beautiful bit of physical comedy which john's really really good at but it's later they go to have a drink together out in this little courtyard or whatever and i, I don't want to replay the whole scene for you but there's little bits that are that are tough about him that are so important um it they just it's hard to explain i love this scene more than any other i think so i don't know i'm a little intimidated by having how, how to explain what happens because fredo goes through several permutations of himself in here he gets almost confessional he tells the story about your mama always said uh or no what's he say he says you know, sometimes I wish I'd have married a nice girl like you did, like oh, Kay. Yeah. And for once in my life, do something right. more like, be a little more like Pop. Mm-hmm. And Pacino got this great line where he he lets that sink in for a second. And then he says, it's not easy being his son, Fredo. You know, <laughs> and that's, mm-hmm. this is a real connection between these guys. Because we've heard, already heard Michael in the movie. You know, Fredo, he's got a good heart, but he's weak and he's stupid. And he said this to Tom, basically, behind his brother's back. And it's not wrong. That's why it hurts to hear it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Fredo says, yeah, mom used to tease me. She said, you're not one of mine. You were left at our doorstep by gypsies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He takes his hand. This whole thing, it's all so tactile. And I love this scene so much. He's like, you're not a gypsy, Fredo. And... He leans into him, and I, I just am amazed by He leads it. He goes, Michael, I was mad at you. And then he leans back, and I think he has a lighter in his hand. Yeah, and he, yeah. And he goes, I think he squeezes it, and he doesn't throw it. He, like, squeezes it really hard and lets go of it. And it plops down onto the mm-hmm. table. And so he doesn't <laughs> throw yeah, it. You're right. kinda, it's, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It, and he says, why didn't we talk like this before? <laughs> and I just, I, I, every time yeah. the scene's on, it's certainly the first time I saw it, I'm like leaning forward going, yeah, do it. Tell him, tell him what's going on. This is it. Yeah. If you don't tell him now, it's over. We know what's going to yeah. happen. You know what I mean? And I just tell him, I'm desperate for him to spit out the words. You know, I had a pretty crucial moment like this in my own life where somebody was trying to tell me something and I wanted them to tell me and they did what Fredo did in this moment where it was just the embarrassment of the moment the whatever it is it draws you back into yourself it makes you go hide somewhere and that's what you see all that in the scene and Michael knows something's going on but he didn't get it and he really does think so little of Fredo that he doesn't ever imagine until he figures it out in one of the worst told lies in the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> of course it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. That it would Fredo's be, yeah. wrapped up in this assassination attempt and this plot against him. And it very innocently, but nevertheless, he's wrapped up in it. He's he gives this innocent lie. Oh, I don't know, you know, who's here. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's not later that evening he's talking about this guy like he's been hanging out with him for years in front of his brother, and his brother gets he gets it all in that moment. It's an innocent lie, but it's like, why would you lie about that? And now I know. And Pacino's reaction to it is amazing. Uh, Fredo's incompetence at being stealthy or being a gangster is 
right there in the forefront. Later that night, he gets the kiss of death. And I'm going to let you play this one because I think it's important because I was kind of amazed when you played it before we did the show. But he grabs, these are the two lines that I think represent John Casale, mm-hmm. and at least in nerddom. Uh, yeah, Pacino and, grabs him. He grabs him by the shoulder. This and, is and the the ball has just dropped on the New Year and in Cuba. You know, which if you know Cuba, anything about the New Year like, of nineteen fifty three or whatever it is in Cuba, it's literally the night the Castro <laughs> took over. So this yeah. history is playing out where our characters don't know what's happening, and, but we, if we know our history, kind of do. And it's just a big cele- yeah, and a big celebration. Big celebration going on. Yeah, streamers, and, confetti. Lights flashing, and he grabs on him, and he pulls him to him, and he kisses him right on the mouth. Mm. And he says, I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. That's stunning to me. When I hear that, Mm -hmm. that's not what the scene is. That's so quiet and reserved, and there's so much meaning and feeling in his words and the way he's saying them. But you, what you have to watch it, and you have to see that he's holding on to him and not letting yeah, him move. The- and Fredo is like flailing like a fish on a hook, and it's incredibly powerful. And Fredo's fear, all the things that we see in John Cassell's eyes in this moment, the fear is just intense and unbelievable yep and he runs away and and they go their separate ways they both escape cuba in different ways uh yeah yeah well and that's the come on get in the car come on get in the car fredo come i know on. they it's i know the they way. tricked you you're still my brother get in the car the there's only, no way off the, the island way out of here me. there's no way off the island yeah and 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 yeah and and, and fredo takes off the other way um yeah so Fredo it, it I just think play that again one more time <laughs> do you have it luck queued up I know it was you Fredo you broke my heart you broke my heart wow Al holy it, smokes it's, <laughs> it's delivered in such a way that you know in 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 the craziness of a big party yeah you know it's like theoretically there's no way he's even even if you're so close to each other you're not going to be you can't talk that that low when you're in a you know in a club with the you know with the music playing and ever you know the band and you know and it, but no it's it's uh, you know it's what he's saying is cutting through everything well but so, and yeah. it's but it's more than that what he's doing physically and what he's saying when i listen to it absent the visual it's it's completely disconnected from that and it there's meaning in it that i didn't know was there until i heard it on its own like that's to me that's kind of incredible that's what's stunning about Mm -hmm. that to me we're resisting the urge to just play you clips of john casali performances because i feel like we sort of lose the essence of what the show is if we do that but that one that one's worth hearing because there's a moment where and it's a culmination. It's not just a moment where Casali is such mm-hmm. a brilliant actor that Pacino is brilliant, but that the heartbreak, you broke my heart, it's profound. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and what, that's due to the connection that between the two men in reality, plus the two characters, like it's all coming home in this big moment. Well, and you, you hit it, you hit it on the head when you said he's like a fish on a hook. It, you know, because uh, his performances is he absolutely cannot get away, and yet he's just sort of trying. He's like he's that awkwardness that we have, you know, that we know of Fredo, and and like and then and he's when he is let go, 
and he's yeah he it's still kind of that flopping flailing and his eyes stay locked on uh fredo's eyes stay locked on michael you know and uh you, you, the entire time as he's kind of stumbling as you said stumbling but it is he's floundering he's floundering he knows he's cooked and um yeah it's uh yeah it's so good so uh, yet yet it doesn't it's not it's not comical it's not overwrought it's not showy it's it's absolutely real and and, and authentic and um yeah it's it's, it's so good it's, it's really is movie acting magic um yep. fredo flails yep. about in the background of the rest of the movie until uh, mama corleone dies spoiler alert for godfather 2 and then he's allowed to come to the funeral obviously but michael doesn't want to be in the same room with him michael's basically giving him the kiss off he's like I don't want to see you at any of the clubs. I don't want to hear you when you come to visit our mother. I don't want you. To, uh, and he goes up to his his right hand man, Al Neary, played by really brilliantly played by Richard Bright throughout the series. And uh, speaking of undersung actors, he says, "I don't." And you don't when you're watching it for the first time, you don't get the meaning. Maybe you guys will because the way we've set this up. But he says, "I don't want him touched while my mother's alive." And what that is, is an order. It's an order to kill him when after his mother dies. And we yeah. don't quite get that. What we, we sound like it's like, a, a, a you know, he's protecting him to some degree, even though he's exiling him. Um, but near, if you watch Bright, Neary's reaction to that is, is profound because everybody loves Fredo. Everybody loves Fredo, even now. Yeah. Um, at her funeral, is it at her funeral? No, it's beforehand. It's, this is, this is the kiss off scene. It's, there's this scene, I don't know how to explain it. It's Gordon Willis's best lit scene. The Prince of Darkness, they call him the cinematographer. It's a scene where it's Tahoe. You're, you're in this boathouse on the water and it's snowing outside in the background and these ceiling to floor windows and, Michael is walking with his usual sort of confidence and chain smoking like he is and drink slug and water. Cause even though he doesn't know he's diabetic, he is, um, <laughs> you know, that's all set up in this movie and it's not even mentioned. It's kind of amazing. And Fredo, there's this weird lounge chair that's probably oh, meant chair. to be out on the deck or something. And it's in the middle of the room and he's sitting in this chair. And of course, to hear Coppola talk about, it. he's like, you know, the chair was there and we knew kind of what it was, but what we couldn't have anticipated was his using the posture that he had in, in this chair while he was flopped back and draped over the thing in defeat and humiliation. And also when he was fighting against, there's moments, there's both, it's moments when he's mm -hmm. fighting against and trying to make his point and trying to stand up for himself and advocate for himself at least a little bit where he can't take a position of strength while being in this chair. He literally can't do it. And Coppola said what we, what we didn't know was how he took that and made it the whole point of the thing. Like right there in the mm -hmm. scene. It's um, amazing. It's really incredible choices. You know, it's that brilliant, I'm smart, not like everybody says. I'm not yeah. dumb. I'm smart. And it's like he's trying to convince himself. It's pathetic. Yeah, but you, it is. It's it. I was I was passed pathetic, over. Yeah. You know, it it it's it. He doesn't get to do this in any of these movies. This is an unusual thing where he's just it. He's spilling his guts, and where we want him to, and we're accepting of it because it doesn't happen very often in these movies. These movies they keep right. it all pretty close to the chest, and he's just 
spilling it all out, all his frustrations and all it. He's trying to stand up for himself and explain why yeah, he didn't know anyone was going to try and kill anybody, but why he wanted something for himself after all this time. And Michael, all Michael can do is like, haven't I always taken care of you? It's just, oh yeah, it's just cold and brutal. I don't want to be taken care of. You're my kid brother. It's an incredible dramatic scene. Yeah. It's 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 my favorite scene in all of the movies. It's so good. It might, yeah, well, it's I, think it might be, I feel yeah. like it's a little too obvious for me to it's so good. But I feel like it's a little too obvious. This is the scene where this is the big Oscar speech moment. Like I yeah. it, I feel like what he did so great wasn't it was this certainly when he had the chance to do it, but it was mm -hmm. these other things where these quieter moments where he was really special. Yeah. But I don't know. It's on the list. Well, I mean, it's on the list yeah, of all-time great John Casale since all-time great Godfather yeah. scenes, even. Yeah, because it's it's you know it, it's like it's it, to me it's because everything everything that has it, it's been leading up to this moment and it's that it's the desperation. Yeah. It is the it is the like you said it's the uh, not. He's not trying to, I mean, he, he's outwardly trying to convince Michael, but he's not, he's convincing, he's convincing himself. Right. He is, he's going all the way back to the beginning of the show when we were talking about um, uh, Cass, the, uh, the, the, the film there, the, uh, the teacher, yeah. his professor, uh, it is that, it is that he is desperately trying to hide that thing that makes him that that is the the source of his shame and pain and and this is fredo doing and everything that. the lighting his own soul the chair they're all betraying the him. snow the snow falling in the background <laughs> on the water it, they're all yeah. just betraying him and revealing the truth of him. it really is powerful yeah. and even though there's no resolution to the scene it, it's cathartic to hear a character mm -hmm. spill their guts like that it's and it's tremendously moving, so it's certainly on the list. Um, he uh, during his mother's funeral, and this is the I'll just skip ahead a little bit, but this is the moment where I think he uh, we talked about all this stuff with Pacino. You broke my heart. I mean, his in this film, his inspiring, incredible performance from other people is it's in every scene that he's in. Mm -hmm. But there's a moment, not even in the scene, where Con Connie Talia Shire comes to Michael and gets on her knees oh, in front yeah. of him and yeah. just begs him to take Fredo back. And <laughs> and her, her making the case, but more her description of him to Michael that it appears to melt his heart somewhat, at least somewhat. To where at least he's willing to humor Fredo's presence in and amongst the family. And they bring him back. They bring him in home. It works. He walks out. Again, another wordless, stunning film. The last time we saw these two characters hugging together was this horrible, the horrible kiss of death moment. This, he comes up to him and Fredo first looks up at him. Can't believe Michael's standing there in his presence. He said he never would again. And then he realized he's got a cigarette in his hand. He's got to put the cigarette out out of respect. But it's all awkward and goofy and weird. And Michael just opens his arms and Fredo falls into his arms. And the whole, everything, the tension, everything just drops out of him. And it, But it's in this scene, like all scenes, it's his eyes. Watch John's eyes. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um. And you see it, We it seems like a non sequitur from here to the end of the movie. It turns out not to be, but it, it, 
it's the crazy uncle has come home. He's not working in the whorehouses anymore. He's not running a club on the in Reno. He's just hanging out with the family. He's spending time with his nephew. They're going fishing together. There's this beautiful monologue about when, we, when my father took me fishing as a kid and I was the only one who caught a fish. And the secret was that every time I put the line in the water, I said a Hail Mary. And every time I said a Hail Mary, I caught a fish. And... We'll go out fishing together and we'll use the secret and you'll see it works. And it's just this adorable. It's these two children and the child relating to the adult child. <laughs> yeah. Because even in this relationship, Anthony, to some degree, is like the more mature person. It's, <laughs> it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I won't ruin There's no reason to end, ruin the end of Godfather 2, but it. it because you don't have to, because it doesn't isn't a performance aspect involved in it, but but it's everything. It's everything. Fredo is is Michael's soul, and Michael's tolerance and love and acceptance of him is the last bit of his soul that he has. And when he forgoes that, or when he loses that, he loses everything. He asks yeah. his mom early in the movie, "Can a man lose his family?" She's like, "How can a man lose?" family she says to him incredulously we all know yeah you're losing your family he loses everything and mm -hmm. and it's because of him it's not even because of him being a gangster it's because he's his his paranoia his inability to trust and his inability to forgive has turned him into a monster and fredo k the kids everybody they're all kind of at the heart of that to one degree but Fredo, most of all, and it's it's diff Godfather too. You know, yeah. This just this is just a third of it that we kind of talked about, and we kind of rushed through it. It's amazing, and it it Casal. It's just his graduation as a film actor through these movies, from the first one to this, and the importance of the character and the trust in the writers and the filmmakers to because this. The old part of the movie is was written already. It was part of the original yeah. novel. The this part's the new part, and they knew when they were writing it that they had a guy who could nail all this, and he he everything he did was beyond their wildest expectations. And and talk to anyone who was in it with him or anyone who worked with him really on anything, but particularly this, and you all you get is insane reverence and love and respect for his work. So yeah. And he wasn't a he wasn't a dick on the set. He was, you know, he was. He caused some delays, guy. and but sure, but it was. It, but it's not because he was throwing tantrums, right? Or because he was being a diva. It's because yeah. he was. He as as his as Merrill says, he took his time with things. <laughs> yeah, that's how he was in life. He took mm -hmm. his time, and and sometimes time is money, and that can be frustrating to other artists, but. You you couldn't argue with the you couldn't argue with the results. You really couldn't. Yep. Uh, did you cover? Did you did you call a signature? Well, moment? I think Talia. I think Talia Shire's is him bringing out the best in somebody. That that yeah moment. I mean, it's all of it. Like I say, but that mo. I'm going to call out that moment because he's not even in that scene. But her, her her desperation to see this thing healed in some way, mm -hmm. especially where we see her at the start of the movie, like just all these. These arcs, and we we don't experience them in a clean, 
dramatic way that we jump through time episodically and these people transform because of these different events. And we just, we feel that in that moment. So that's my favorite moment. And Talia Shire, just shout out to her. It's heartbreaking. He's so, he's so sweet. She says, (laughs) he's so helpless without you. That's the big thing. Yeah. It's, He he really I mean he really Can't is. Can't you find he, it in your heart to forgive Fredo? It's and and we're all yeah please do that. We're all on her team, you know. We, it, it, you know, even yeah. if you even if you can't forget, even if you're not on Michael's team anymore, and it's reasonable if you're not, but you still just please do that. And then when you think he does, it's like with him, it's such a relief. Um, a signature moments him dropping the lighter on the table. What a just an amazing actor choice. Yeah, it's just a weird. It's like all his films. It's a weird thing that he does that you don't see anybody else do in any other sort of context. It's super organic and real, and it it's that. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I, that's everything. That's the whole thing. <laughs> it's right there, it has that. Yeah, it thing. has the. No, it's actually a really good point because I, you know, it has. I remember it as he kind of chucks it down but you're right he does it it's the same energy he releases as throwing it, it down right. it's that it's the same it's it's in the same uh uh area but it's a different choice it is it's the and it's that it's that it's 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 not a i'm throwing this away it's you're right it's a don't let it go i release it and uh yeah it's it's so good um all right so um, I mean, it, it's really the it's the scene you talked about. It's the scene in the in the deck chair in the boathouse. Yeah. I mean that that's the scene. If we if you can only watch one John Cassell scene, I, you pick that one. But I feel like that is a sh- that showmanship, mm-hmm. and it's an incredible emotionally raw scene. And that's what we like. We want our drama to be that. But right. that's earned by all these tiny little things along the way, and that's. Yep. Those are the things that he he was truly special at. Most good actors, Hackman, De Niro, Pacino, all the ones we're talking about, when it's time to go and let you have it, they all pretty much nail it because because I don't want to say that's the easy part. You you have to earn it, but it it's if you're a good actor, you you nail that thing. You nail the big moment to find so much punctuation and so much meaning in the little moments is what John was mm-hmm. so good at. So I yep. That's all. That's the only distinction I'm making there. That's obviously that might be the signature scene of his career. I'm smart, yeah. just desperate. I'm smart yeah. and leaning forward, trying to like make his point, and he can't physically like sit up straight, and he <laughs> just like and his yep. whole body's fighting to do that, and it can't. Yeah, and that's him in a nutshell. So I mean, it really is brilliant. So good. Um, let's talk about his uh, his fourth film. Dog Day Afternoon, based on a true story. Sidney LeMay, when he was cast in Dog Day Afternoon, Pacino tells his story. It's strange because Sidney's done a lot of interviews about John as well, but it's Pacino that tells the story Where because I don't think Sidney wants to say, I don't want John Casale for this movie. Like I don't think he just, mm-hmm. now that he's gone, I don't think he wants to hear his words say that. So Pacino's like, yeah, Sidney, you know, what Sidney wanted was a 19-year-old kid. And, and Pacino, he goes further than that. He goes, and you know what? I think he's right. I think that's right. That's what the character needs to be. But mm-hmm. we just, me and the producer, we kept saying, oh, what about John? What about John? And LeMay, out of respect for Pacino, is like, 
and because he appreciated John Stewart, he's like, okay, look, I'll read him, but I, I'm not going to. And Sidney yeah. says, you know, and he comes into the room and he couldn't look more wrong for the thing. And then when he read for the thing, it was, it just blew everybody's minds. And you yeah. just, even though it wasn't the right idea and it wasn't the thing, although, again, Casale, in a, maybe in a slightly more theatrical way than what we've seen in these other movies or than we're used to seeing in movies at all, he gets there. He gets that 19-year-old, hardwired, tense, kid-like quality to this guy, even though that's not what he is necessarily. It is what he is. It is the purpose that he ends up serving on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. So he they cast him, obviously, and the rest is history. And Dog- again, he, he and Pacino have that chemistry that you cannot... Well, but- you know, you can't, you can't write that. You can't plan, right. you know, it's, it, Pacino, it's, yeah. Pacino just wanted John in the movie because John was going to make the movie better. Like he just, he knew enough to have the vision to want that. And if you hear to, to hear Pacino tell it, he's like, I, you know, he, John's my acting partner. He, I learned more about acting from anybody than from John than anyone else. I thought at the time that he was going to be my partner forever, that we we're going to just keep, doing this stuff together always. And he, it, it's really kind of amazing. Pacino, he kind of starts to, he kind of starts to cry and he kind of stops mm-hmm. like, like movie stars do in these interviews. Like they're happy to let you see them cry, but they don't want to get that crying look on their face. Like that's not dignified. They, yeah. You know, Pacino's, he's whatever he is, he's a great actor, but he's a star and he's not going to go there, but he stops and he just waits for a long time. And he's like, it's, he goes, it's, 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 it's not in the documentary, which is too bad. I'm not sure why they cut it out. It's in his, the, the raw footage of his interview, which I've seen. And he says, it's, it's, see, it's still there. Yeah. That's <laughs> what he says after 30 years, you know, it's, it's still there. And then he kind of gets back into talking about the movies but he knew, he knew that it, John would make it special and he does. I mean, is there any, I mean, he does as over the top and crazy and Attica, Attica as, as big a circus as Dog Day Afternoon is, which it is, is the story of this guy who's robbing a bank to pay for his lover's sex change operation. And it's the dumbest bank robbery of all time. And mm-hmm. it all goes to hell as you would expect. And, you know, it, but the, key thing is is that Pacino's harmless in it you know he is and all the bank tellers know he is and everybody kind of the cop kind of knows he is and they're all just trying to get this out but there and there's something to John too that where the even though he's not harmless he's dangerous and the signature role in this you know Pacino even says so he's like he goes I'm you know I'm the bark He's the bite. bite. And they cut mm-hmm. to him and he's standing there with this automatic machine gun. And uh, John throughout the whole film is just this tense, the way he uses his body, the way his weird page boy hair flops around and gets stuck to his forehead and stuff. And the eyes, the eyes have it with this guy. These eyes, the eyes of Fredo that are so wet and warm and cuddly and you just want to hug him and forgive him. The eyes of Sal in Dog Day Afternoon are intense and terrifying. Even when he's trying to be nice, he's scary. Um, it's it's incredible. There's a scene, it's probably the most famous scene of John's from Dog Day Afternoon, where 
you know, where, and it's, it's the moment before that I think is really powerful, but the scene plays out in a pretty great way. It's important for us to get to know this guy. And, you know, Pacino says to the cop, he says, you better, you know, you better do what I want or I'm going to start throwing bodies out the door. And the, they cut to John and the look on his face when he hears that is like, like, it's serious. Like he gets, I'm doing a, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. A clown show. Don't look at me. But why? <laughs> watch the, watch the no, thing. It is, it is, it is absolutely, it's, yeah, it is. It's serious. And you just, and then in a moment later, he's like, did you, did you really mean what you said? Do you really mean what you said about that? Well, he goes, what? What did I say? Al Pacino does nothing but monologue the entire movie. So he didn't even know what he's talking about. He's just talking tough and trying to make an impression on this cop. He has no intention of shooting anyone or throwing bodies at the door. Yeah. None whatsoever. And just like that thing about throwing bodies outside, is that, do you mean that? Because, um, I don't know, I, I think I'm ready to do it. Yeah. And it's and he it's again I'm not doing justice to it but it, it you believe him it's scary so he's scary for the rest of the movie yeah you know there's this horrible moment where the Fed says hey you've done a good job he says saying this to Pacino's character you done a good job man you keeping the keeping everybody alive a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that you know it's intense and you're like, What's <laughs> the guy up to and he goes so don't worry you just you know you get him out there keep it together for a couple more hours and don't worry about Sal. We'll take care of him. And Pacino, again, same thing. This It's just a reaction shot, but it's this, mm -hmm. what? What do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> what do they mean by that? They, do, they, what yeah. do, do they mean? And he kind of, it's human. He kind of knows what they mean, but he doesn't want to face it. He doesn't want to confront it, and he doesn't end up dealing with it. But the FBI guys know right away, hey, Sal. Yeah. Sal's the problem. Sal's the thing that has to be neutralized. And once he's out of the picture, all the rest of this just they can get all of the yeah they'll be able to get everybody else yeah and then this is you know the signature moment in it is that you know we we're you know we're gonna get a limousine or a <laughs> they end up getting a bus a, you know they're gonna take a bus to the airport it's just ridiculous you, who has mm -hmm. ever escaped from a hostage situation on a jet just, I, they're 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 entertaining this fantasy is absurd but you know he says to him he goes so where do you want to go you know you can go anywhere you want okay. anywhere you want and he just, any any country any yeah anywhere is there a particular country any and particular he's like, country you want to go uh, wyoming is what he says and this is apparently everybody involved says i sometimes i don't believe these but everybody involved says this nobody knew he's Wyoming like the, there's yeah. one cut where he said Wyoming and that's the thing that ended up in the movie and then they even thought it was so great that while they were shooting they added a line later that was a callback to it so that it really would feel like a thing that they planned but it was not planned so LeMay said he almost ruined the cut by laughing out loud and mm -hmm. he said Pacino says something similar but you can see Pacino he knows better he's in the movie with John and he knows what John is and he knows that yeah. whatever John does I gotta keep working I, I well yeah and and it's and it's a perfect response to why i mean he's like that's that's it, that's not a country you know what i'll take care of it i'll take that, care of it that's, and he, and he was able that's to not a country on, yeah. and then they both kind of look at each other and yeah uh, uh, don't worry about it i'll, I'll yeah, figure I, it out I, I got it i got it i got it i'll figure it out it's it's yeah it's so good it's great it's a moment that comes from a deep mm -hmm. relationship between two trusting actors and 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 because it's wyoming's funny but well, we'll get into that at the end. Wyoming's probably the signature moment of the show, and I'll explain why in a moment. But it, yeah, he he's fantastic in that. He's this big ball of nerves, 
that weird ironic scene where he's he gets all pissed at one of the bank tellers for smoking cigarettes because yes. they're not being because he you know he died of lung the cancer he a, was a notorious chain smoker but but Sal gets yeah. super judgy and self righteous with this woman and she's been in this hostage this absurd hostage situation with him for long enough that he she's not even scared of him anymore and it's this weird creepy exchange it's really fantastic there's a great moment where. Um, where, you know, Al says something to the hostages when he's locking them in the bank vault. And then um, and then John cocks the gun and goes, Ugh! and he's like threatens them and they all scream. And then he like jumps back like he's scared of them screaming. Mm-hmm. It's weird, but watch for it because it's a genius yeah. choice that he makes. Really unexpected. There's this weird moment where he's like, watch him, watch the bank manager. And he he's just this big tall backed wheelie chair and he grabs onto the chair and like wheels it over all awkwardly next to the other tall backed chair that's at the bank teller's desk and he sits down in it with the gun and then invites him to sit down it's so weird and odd mm-hmm. and just physically strange and and like i said the specificity of it is what makes it all memorable what's he what's he even thinking he has this whole weird plan with the chair and it's it's just crazy that that movie. What did Sam Sam Rockwell said? They keep cutting to John even when he's not talking because he didn't have a lot of lines in it. As I said, mm-hmm. all Pacino does is blah 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 the whole film. We're we're bringing out the highlights of some of the things that Sal says, but it's it's just a handful of things throughout the film. But they keep cutting to him, and, and Rockwell says in, in, the, in the doc that we'll talk about in a minute, he says, uh, he says they keep cutting him to him because you can see the stakes of the thing in his eyes. And it's really easy to lose track of that when you're just watching Pacino because he's fairly, uh, he's fairly harmless. Mm-hmm. And the, what's at stake, what's really going on here, the potential disaster and nightmare this thing could become is always on, it always in Sal's eyes. And that's why there's so many cuts to him. And I'll tell another funny anecdote. Why not from the, it's, it's like the, for you Marvel fans, it's the mid credit scene in the documentary with Steve Buscemi, John's one of Steve's heroes and you can see it in Steve's acting. And he says, uh, especially his, later period acting john's uh um steve says he goes you know i did it when i was starting out and starting to get some recognition for the tarantino films and other things he goes i did a guest voiceover on the simpsons where i was playing a bank robber and when me and my friends were sitting down to watch it you know how they do the simpsons you do the voices and october and then come may you get to see the episode because the animation is really good it's not south park they work on it for months until it's finally finished. And he said, and w- I looked at myself talking and I was, I had the hair and I was, I was Sal from Dog Day Afternoon. And he said, weirdly, and I'm like, that was such a compliment to me. And it was the first time I really felt like I've made it. They, 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 mm-hmm. my voice is John Casale's like image. And that was his it's funny to hear him tell it. That was his moment where he's like, all right, it's, I did it. I'm a, I'm an actor now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's any, it's funny. And Steve knows it's a funny anecdote, but you get, there's meaning behind what he's saying. He really, 
was honored and amazed and believed in himself more from seeing his voice come out of John's face. Yeah. <laughs> in a Simpsons episode. And it, it, it's very, very cool. And it comes from that rather, this rather iconic, bizarre look. Buscemi yeah. says, he goes, I when I, when he first appears, I'd never seen a guy like that in a movie before. <laughs> Who is he? It's, He's one of a kind. It's incredible. Just before he even opens his mouth and utters anything. So Dog Day, you know, pretty amazing. Yep. Uh, so then um, let's, do we want to talk a little bit about what happens in between Dog Day Afternoon and the Deer Hunter? Well, we a little bit. And we'll save the yeah. rest. We'll save the, the crux of it to the end. But, yeah, he would... We'll save the crux of it to the end. One thing amazing that happened in between the two was he sort of discovered the love of his life. And this is a wonderful sure. story where he told, he came, he was working on Measure for Measure, I want to say, yep. Shakespeare in the yep. Park. Joel said he, his, he was a stage actor in the true sense in that that's what he was always doing. And as these film roles would come along, he would take them and knock them out of the park. But, but he always assuming it was it was just he was going to go back to the stage that was the thing he was going to do and he was always welcome back to the stage well he was co-starring in Shakespeare in the Park with this up-and-coming actress and he came over to Al's place after one of their rehearsals and he said I've just seen the greatest actress who ever lived and <laughs> Al, <laughs> to hear Al tell it he's like wow he goes, yeah, like, okay, he, she, you're in you know, love. But he goes, yeah. yeah, exactly. You're, you're just, you're excited about this person or whatever. But I, I expect that you haven't seen the greatest actress who ever lived. Just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course he had, he's, I mean, you know, it's, it's subjective of course, but he had, he had met Meryl Streep and that relationship. It's hard, but it's very private. And through the years, it's been very quiet. And through the years, not many people have wanted to do interviews about John Casale. So all this is sort of lied dormant until this doc came out until people really started talking about it until the legend of it really grew. And a lot of it's just legend. We're going to read some of the more unbelievable aspects of it here before the show is done, just so you can hear and feel the story. But I think we're going to do it in the spirit of drama, you know, and just mm -hmm. with the understanding that this may be dramatic, versions that represent the reality of their lives this relationship was really intense it wasn't yeah. just that john loved meryl streep or had a crush on her she loved him too they were everyone could feel how super into each other these guys were like they like it like they found each other is the words they use and i don't know if you know that feeling but that it's that's it's profound and I kind of know what they're talking about to some degree, perhaps not quite on this level that they're describing, but that's a big thing that happened to him between films. And the other big thing that happened was he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, terminal they used when yeah. they gave him the news. And Al was driving him to the, his therapy and his treatments that he was getting as a result of it. And he, I, what Israel Horowitz, I think, is the one who said, you know, he's an actor, so he he portrayed a lot of hopefulness that I, that I'm not sure that any of us had when we got, because he was coughing up blood and he was just in really really bad shape. They were about to shoot um, the Deer Hunter. It's a 
big, expensive, uh, universal picture about Vietnam and the effects of Vietnam and trauma, more, more specifically of trauma on, on people and how these different people dealt with it. And Roy Scheider, who was going to star in it, had just dropped out of it because he kind of couldn't, Roy couldn't deal with it as a metaphor, which I think to take the deer hunter, you really have to. The Vietnam, the Vietnam prison scenes and then the later like underground scenes, they're like, it, they are hard to buy. And Schweider couldn't make his peace with it. It was that kind of actor where he, to do the role, he needed to, to be able to do that and he couldn't. So he dropped out of a big production that he thought otherwise was going to be really good. And it is. It's the best picture of 1977. It is 1978. Eight Oscars. Yeah. But the 77 year in movies, yeah? Uh, no, it was released in, in, in and Christmas 78. Of 78. Christmas, Christmas 78, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. So anyway, without getting into the whole story of the Deer Hunter, which is his own show, but Robert De Niro took Roy Scheider's place and wanted to bring along Casale. And Meryl Streep was in the relationship with him, was going to be in it. Uh, George Zunza's in it, one of uh, Joel's favorite actors. He's great in it. Uh, John Savage is never better than he is in this. Um, They brought John along, even though he was really, really sick. And Meryl says that, you know, the studio didn't want him because they didn't, it's not that they didn't want him as an actor. It's that they didn't, they didn't want, it was Thorn EMI Studios, which is a British studio that produced this very American movie. Movie literally ends with them singing God bless America. Then it's a little, <laughs> I like the deer hunter, but of all the films on this list, a little heavy handed for my taste. I mean, it's just a little much. Um, but, but, they really wanted Casal involved. This wasn't a very big role. He didn't have to be in any of the Vietnam scenes, which he could not have done. He plays this guy who is one of those core friends, but he's the one that doesn't go off to war. And his utility in the movie is also named Stanley is, um, is he, he's the one who's not affected by this stuff and the contrast of our characters and the way they've changed, particularly, uh, Robert De Niro's Michael compared to him who stayed home and stayed the same is profound and that's that's the use he's put to Casale doesn't even really talk much in the early goings of the film the film starts out like the Godfather movies the big ceremony it starts out with this big steel town Pennsylvania wedding and wedding reception and every scene that John's in, he's making some incredible wordless choice whilst not stealing from the meaning of what we're seeing. And you can just call out every single one of them. There's this weird one where the bride and groom walk by and he kind of like, he does this thing where he pretends to step on her dress, but doesn't and thinks yeah. it's funny and then looks around to see if anyone saw him pretend to do it and nobody did. It's this whole bit he plays in just these couple of sections. There's this moment where he's dancing and stuff, and then he kind of looks at this woman, and it's all this business, but then he kind of checks to see if, like, he thinks he's hot stuff, and then he checks to see if his zippers. Yeah, they, like, there's a whole big group photo. There's right. a whole big group photo, and everyone's getting ready and all this stuff, and he's looking at it, and then he just quick makes sure it does a fly check. Stanley's a yeah. jerk. He's not a cool guy. He's yeah. a jerk. There's this scene early on where he's, 
in his tux and he's sort of with his date and he catches his own reflection in a car window out in the parking lot and he just kind of straightens his tie and looks at himself and he whispers at the end of it he goes beautiful and we're not used to seeing him be like this but but it's there's a self-hatred to him that's nevertheless really a part of the character. He's acting out in these weird ways out of a certain amount of shame. Shame that he's not going to the war. Shame that he's a coward, maybe. I'm not sure what it is. Shame that he just doesn't treat people very well and is human enough to still feel a little bad about it later. The big scene with him, and it's not a scene at all. It's it's a simple thing where it's movies called The Deer Hunter, and at the night of this wedding reception they travel all night to go out into the wilderness they literally travel from central pennsylvania to washington state mountains i don't know how they did that but they did it's very scenic so whatever i'll look the other way but they get there and he and they all the history of these characters is all in this scene without it even being spoken but he's like he's wearing his tux and he's got this stupid fur hat on and he's still wearing his tux out in these mountains De Niro's all kitted out. He's got his vest and his rifle mm-hmm. with the eagle and the with the American flag all on and the the little shoulder strap of it. And and so Stanley's like, ah, I forgot my boots. Uh, Mike, b- borrow me your spares. Because yep. Mike's a character who brings spare boots to a hunting trip. And Stanley's a character who wears a tux and a Russian hat to a camping trip. And he's like, no. No, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, what? Come on. Don't be an asshole, of course. And it's this, the argument of the spare boots. And yep. Michael's thing is, you got to learn at some point. You know, I, you do this, this every time. This. Yeah, this he holds up this. the bullet. Yeah. He goes, this is this. Yeah. It's the uh, kind of iconic De Niro moment. It's, it really doesn't have much to do with the movie, mm-hmm. but this is this. This isn't something else. This is this. And Casale's complete mockery of 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 that meaningful thing he's holding a bullet in his hand and saying this is this this is what the movie's going to be about in just a few moments we don't we're not right ready for it but it foreshadows everything that's coming so this is this this what do you mean what do you mean this is it yeah oh god it's so it's it's really amazing and and john is losing himself He's this hollowed out version of himself. Yeah, he's dying. really is. Yeah. He's really dying right in front of our eyes, which is a harrowing thing to watch. When Michael comes back from Vietnam, and I mean, I'm skipping the whole third act, middle act of the movie, the, the body of the movie, but Casala's not featured in any of that. When he comes back and and uh, Casale's messing around with his pistol that he brought with him on this other, this the next hunting trip they go on together as a group and it, everything has changed. And he stayed the same. And the confrontation in that scene is is amazing. And it's, what's really cool about Stanley and the deer hunter is that this, the lesson of the boots goes right over his head and off, back home and he just mm-hmm. doesn't get it the lesson of the the loaded pistol he 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 gets to some degree it doesn't change him but he's a more reserved and respectable character for the rest of the film and that's you know that's really intense and really crazy and and 
and it's an amazing performance, but it really is true that from a, from a Casali perspective, the story of the deer hunter is really the things that went on behind the scenes. It was De Niro putting up the money to ensure him so that he could be in the film. It's Meryl taking a role in a film that she, and it's too, she was Oscar nominated for the deer hunter. It's too bad that she doesn't look fondly on it. She says, well, that's just a girl. It's like a man's idea of what a girl is. Mm -hmm. And she said that role didn't interest me at the time. Um, I, I, I think she's selling that performance short. I think there are a lot of women like that who come up, whether it's in these small towns or that generation or this one or the next one being very much a man's idea of a girl and that that's a real experience and that you can bring a lot of humanity to that. And I think she does that actually. So I think in a, with another actor, you lose all that. So I think she's kind of amazing in it, but she just did it. She took a role that she didn't admire uh -huh. to be with him, to be with him more and to be with him at the end even though everyone will tell you that Meryl <laughs> he, John did the performance of a guy who was going to beat lung cancer that had already spared, spread to his toes practically and she mm -hmm. played the, the the true believer that believed somehow it would happen and she did really right up until the last few seconds there was a post that we put on the on the page ages ago because I read it. It's a lot of the things we've already talked to, but I'm going to read the myth of John Casali on his deathbed. I got it here. Give me a second. Just so you can hear it. I, like I say, I say, I think a bit of this is legend. Even the, 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 the journalist says, if you believe this, there's a version of the story that says so he's even, yeah. he's like hedging his bets a little bit, but, um, in, in, in early March 1978, Casali entered Memorial Sloan Ketterling. That's a kind of sanitarium hospital. Um, and Streep never left his side. On March 12, 1978, at 3 a.m., Casali's doctor told Streep he's gone. And Merrill wasn't ready to hear that, much less believe it. What happened next, by some accounts, is the culmination of all the tenacious hope Meryl had kept alive for the past 10 months. She pounded on his chest, sobbing, and for a brief alarming moment, uh, John opened his eyes and said, it's all right, Meryl. It's all right. And then he, then he passed on and disappeared. Um, that story, okay. True or <laughs> not? <laughs> right. It's, Probably not. Well, that's, I mean, I, yeah, if I really believed it, what did I say in the post? You want to hear my words? I, I chose them carefully like I do in my writing. It's not all just verbal diarrhea with me. When I write, I'm a little careful. <laughs> it's not like the <laughs> podcast, sorry. I said, we've been unabashed on the show about our love for John Casale. Admiration and awe for Meryl Streep pretty much goes without saying. I've heard the story below many times. If true... It always feels like a violation somehow to share it. If false, it would seem to diminish the real connection between these two remarkable people. Nevertheless, we pride ourselves somewhat on telling the story behind the story at the movie show with Joel and Ryan, and there are a few more affecting stories than this one. And I get to yeah. say, that's true. <laughs> that is true. It that 
sort of knocks my socks off when I read it and when I think about it. When you'll see Meryl, if you watch, uh, I knew it was you rediscovering John Casale, the, the HBO documentary that was made just about his performances and his memories. When you watch her, she's not in it very much because she's just not historically, she's not talk about him very much. And she doesn't talk much about their relationship. The others have to do that for her. But when she's talking about him, she's got this kind of like shawl on and this V-neck thing. And she keeps, she keeps doing this, like pushing mm -hmm. on her heart. And you can see even in the scenes where she's not doing that, like her, her, it's all red and her handprint is there. And through this whole interview, she's gone on and married and she's got grown kids who are like awesome actors. And I mean, yeah. life goes on, but when she talks about John, she's really only able to talk about him as an actor, which there's a tragedy and a, a very real, like emotional heft to it because of that. And the fact, and this is something Meryl, when you'd see her do interviews, she does this a lot. It's not just for him, but it, it struck me when I watched, I watched it this morning before the show so that some of these things would be fresh in my mind. And it struck me that I saw her own handprint on her heart when she talks yeah. about him. Like it's, it's, it was a, it was a profound relationship. The relationship with her and Pacino, the relationship between Israel Horowitz and John Casale, they, he affected these people just in their lives in incredible, in meaningful ways. And I cannot recommend enough that you watch that doc. It's, I knew it was, it's it was only, 45 minutes. It's only something. 45 minutes. Yeah. It's only five movies. It's half the, it's less than half the length of our stupid show where I just blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I recommend you watch it. I knew it was you rediscovering John Casale. I, I had it's a little different, but I had, we talked about acting and uh, acting for Joel's a professional actor and he's the real deal. I, I'm not a very good professional. I wasn't a very good professional. I wasn't good at the professional part. I think I'm a pretty decent actor, but I'm not, I wasn't good at the, it was hard for me to get geared up to do repeats and do all that. And that's really what being an actor is. It's giving it your all. It's taking each audience member seriously. I feel like I knew that and did it, but I didn't like it. And so that passionate part of the performance part of it, I didn't really like. But when I dropped out of of being a theater professional and became more of a theater hobbyist, I got to do a bunch of shows with my friend Gus, who was my acting partner in my life. And I, he was a tricky guy because he was a larger-than-life, huge character, and we were all just mm -hmm. moons in his orbit. You know what I mean? So he, he was a big superstar but i found that the trick and john sort of taught me this from watching him i found that the trick that acting with a titan even on our little intimate little local level was to to the trick to rising above that was not to compete with that you really can't with some people sometimes acting is a competition a fun one it depends you know we talked about yeah with that realization, wow, this person's really good. When I was a kid, I was in a show with this girl named Tara. She was super great and she was really good. And I was like, Oh my God. Like it was my first realization that I can't, it's not my charm and my up here winging it. Like I've done, and this is when I was, I don't know, I was 13 or something, 12, but I still had that realization. She's good. She's like really good at this and I yeah. have to be equally good at it. With Gus, it wasn't couldn't be competitive though. I had to do other things to hold my own, you know, to 
I had to do something different to hold my own. I don't know if that's that, that story doesn't have anything to do with it. I don't know why that popped into my head. <laughs> well, I mean, no, it, I you're mean, following we, the connection a little bit, Joel, right? Because you know me. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, and, and I know, and I certainly know Gus, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to perform with him um, a couple of times myself. And he, he, yeah, he, he was, he was, a, he was, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a monster on stage. If you, and if you didn't up your game with yeah. him, he would swallow you. Right. And, 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 and he had no, and I don't mean this in a mean way. He had no compunction about it at all. He, it was like, you better, you better, or I'm going to destroy you. And, and, and it that's wasn't not going to serve the show. And I never even heard him say such a thing. I think it was instinctual as much as anything. I really no, think that I, was, no, he would never say, animal. no, he would never say that. Right. He, he didn't set that, out. He didn't set out to make energy. you look bad. He just, no, in fact, the opposite, he just couldn't just, be stopped just, and wouldn't be stopped out of courtesy toward you. Mm-hmm. So you had to, you had to find and your yeah, way. He, and you, you had to bring it and you had to bring it every night. Um, well, and I guess I else. I do know what made me think of it. I mean, the, to hear, I had the same feeling. I was when I quit being a theater professional and stage managing and sound designing and assistant directing and all the stuff I was doing for money for a career, and I I started just acting again and writing again and doing the things that I liked. I I took for granted that I just like I think Al did that I was always going to have this. I was always going to have my partner. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I didn't mind that it was a hobby. And I liked that I only had to do two weeks of shows instead of two months. You know what I mean? Like I, Mm -hmm. it was, this was great. I rediscovered my love of it. So that's a person that we lost that, I don't know. When you think about the great losses and you see John's effect on these people, it, it brought some of those feelings up, but Hey, we got a question. Yeah. Let's see. We, so let's, uh, yeah, we have, um, uh... I have a question. Who gave you the right to play God? What the hell's going on out here? Why do I bother? What is the point in doing anything? How dare you! What more do you want from me? I have a question. Yeah, we got, uh, so yeah, our good friend Rob, um, you know, in, in new, he, he knew we were doing this show and was nice enough to send us a couple Woo. couple thoughts. Thanks, um, Rob. So, yeah, so uh, as Superman, you may have noticed. the show. Yeah, as you may have noticed, this was not a countdown of John Cazale films. <laughs> this was not. We did not rank anything because, uh, as we said, we're like, no, these these are all number ones. These are all. There was going to be a charts. point, although after yeah. the the deathbed story, I, obviously my joke wasn't going to really work tonally <laughs> like I had hoped. But there was um, going to be a point where we revealed the top five are they're all yeah. tied for number one. <laughs> number one, yeah. Um, we didn't we didn't get to that unfortunately but yeah, that's okay but, it was a dumb joke anyway but i however, love them all I mean, they're all they are yeah, they're, we, they're they're five tremendous films they're they're really they're really really good and and um, in their own ways they're just incredible performances so. Mm-hmm. um so uh but he but but rob rob is uh is he's gonna to try and pin us down bit. right yeah he's gonna pin us down he's like what what is what do we think his best performance is Gazal, and what is the best film he is in so they might not be the same the same uh they well most likely probably won't be By the same just a nudge i mean they, i think they are the same film i think they're both godfather two yeah um i think his best film that he's in actually is probably the original godfather and he is brilliant in it i think his best performance by just a nose over dog day afternoon, afternoon. is godfather two 
Be, just because it's there's there's so much more meat on the bone for him in, in that particular film, and that that's that's why you you get more of him. You get more diverse performance. You get a more fully realized character. You get a character who's tied to the stakes of the story in extremely key ways. Um, and you create the ghost of a thing that haunts all sort of future things in its wake. And it, that's a kind of, it's a perfect summation of kind of what he was as an actor too. So if I had to pick just one performance, it'd be Godfather two. I'm someone who slightly prefers the original Godfather to Godfather two, but again, only yeah. slightly. And that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would have to, I would have to agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say Dog Day Afternoon per- is extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's a really I, I you know it's I oh boy I mean it is and it's an incredible performance. I just think it's you know, making his, but Fredo is it, iconic. It, it's, yeah, it's, Fredo yeah. is him rising to the challenge of an incredible dramatic responsibility with mm-hmm. absolute flying colors. Dog Day Afternoon is is creating something that's not even there all on his own out of nothing out of thin air. Yeah. And it, that is a stunning thing to watch as well. And he was good at both, but I, I think if I had to pick yeah. one, it's Godfather too. Yep. Um, all right. So uh, this is our, this is uh, Rob's um, uh, endeavor into speculative fiction. Um, what do you think? What do you think he would have been great in if he had lived? So basically if he hadn't died in 78, what roles in say the next decade, so let's just let's just you know put it in in some of the movies of the eighties. What do you think he would have you know what what he, what might he have been in? What might he have been great in? I I almost can't Which do this tough. you know because it it it's a great question and it would be fun to speculate. But mm-hmm. from a legacy standpoint, and I, again, this is I don't want this to sound weird, but we've I, we've talked about. <laughs> I've talked about uh, all the babysitting money spent on seeing Titanic over and over and over again because Leo DiCaprio drowns at the end of Titanic, <laughs> and what he leaves behind is perfection. Yeah, and he that wouldn't be possible if he'd have kept going. He 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 never did meet the parents, and he never did Devil's Advocate, and he never I mean he never did whatever crappy movie Meryl Streep's been in. She's been in a handful. He he. She devil, uh, yeah. you know that like that. Not... I was gonna go. I was gonna say death becomes her. John sure. Cazale in the uh, in the Bruce Willis role. But um, do we really we... want to see that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's Maybe, there's a way that the eighties are really show. different than the seventies, and this is interesting. Yeah. It's an, even though I'm not going to answer your question, Rob, because I just I don't want to cast John in the Goonies or something. Although. Right. Well, like could he might he have been have good been... as one of the Fratelli brothers in the Goonies. Any, it, it, who knows? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, it is. It's also you know, if you think about it in a macro way, would he have would he have been would he have elevated into uh, leading roles as he got a little you know as he got a, or would he stay a character and the size of those character roles? Like I think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Could would he could he have been? Um, uh, 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 oh my god, what's his name? Balak, ba- uh, Belak, Belak, yeah. Could he have been Belak? Maybe could he, he could have. have been, I don't, could I he... don't see him that way, but yeah, 
But or could he, he constantly showed up and surprised us and knocked our socks off so when we were that's, that's least what I, expecting it? So who knows? When when I read the question from Rob, that was actually the first role that I thought of. Or if he didn't want to play that role, he could have played uh uh he could have played the the, the you know the 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 torture guy that that you know with the imprint on his so. hand. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't but, think uh, so. I think he's got so much heart and he had so much craft. And I think that the style of what you're talking about mm-hmm. I it's hard for me to imagine. And it, it's because there was a quantum shift in films there in the late seventies, right when he died in seventy five to seventy seven, the emergence of Jaws and the big event movie. And yeah. it's hard for me to imagine him. But more to the point he, as I didn't know him and he wasn't my friend and I don't remember when he died, like his, his filmography is one of perfection. It's one of unimpeachable greatness. He's my favorite actor of all time. And if you start putting him as like the agent in Ishtar or, you know, as the <laughs> guy in the Beethoven movies or whatever, I just, and there were, you know, they're good hefty films in the, you know, maybe in the eighties, but it, it was, yeah. I gotta say it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same where film movie after movie after movie in the seventies, you know, they had their cheap entertainment saying, too, but Horovitz says maybe. it. We all came up at this time and I think we knew it at the time, where there was one glorious opportunity after another. Where yeah. and I think we were aware of it that it's not gonna get any better than this ever. You know, we gotta relish each thing. And he was he was a champion in life of biting it off and chewing it and relishing each moment and each performance. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe, I mean, he did kept going like everybody else did, but yeah, maybe he would have been in, maybe he would have played the accountant in untouchables. Uh, maybe he could have been, maybe it could have been Schwarzenegger, Kazal twins. Maybe, but <laughs> I don't yearn for any of those things when I think about no, it. So no, it's an interesting um, question anyway, Rob, because it it makes us it makes us think. I mean, it makes us try and project him. Pacino says that he he I'm sure he would have been in stuff, but he says he thinks he thinks he John would have been really good at running the National Theater. Yeah, well, yeah, you know that's that's another thing is you sort of feel like I mean. It, it, his love did continue to be to the end was, was live theater. He probably would have just carved out a, an amazing career for himself doing shows in New York. Um, and uh, yeah. And then doing the occasional film role. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if something appealed to him. Um, it, so, yeah. So th- that brings us to Rob's final question, which is, uh, which is very tongue in cheek. It's uh, so if he had lived, do you think he would have continued his policy of only appearing in movies nominated for best picture at the Academy Awards? No. I and I, <laughs> I, I like I, the idea that it was policy. Yeah, policy. I think that's my favorite part about this question. Is it's a very somehow funny, he had it's a, a very policy. funny like, nah, question. I don't know. But I'm it goes back to what it. I just said. It, he yeah. couldn't have. Yeah. And therefore, therefore his legend would be somewhat tarnished. You know? Yeah. I I still think all these actors are fantastic. Obviously, Meryl Streep, Pacino, mm-hmm. Hackman, we just were, you know, spilling our guts over just a few weeks back. You know, these are the best ever. But, and he's, but he's solidly among that group. And no, he couldn't have. He would have he would have done stuff that was not good and he would have done stuff that was garbage. Yeah. It is hard to project his style 
onto the onto like the Back to the Future films or stuff like that. It's yeah, I don't know. I think he maybe could have done it, but it's it's tough because the time capsule that we have isn't just great and doesn't just so a very devoted and unique approach to the material. It's just nearly a hundred percent successful. Yeah. And I don't, you, that couldn't have continued. It, it doesn't continue for any of us. He was 42 yeah. when he was taken and that's too young, but it's, it's, it it's like... a rock star sort of passing mm-hmm. and the stuff that he is, was involved in is immortalized. So yeah. I think you, you know, I, I don't know how many, other superlative adjectives I can come up with, but I, you get it. You get <laughs> yeah. after listening to the show to this point, you get how I feel. He, he wasn't always my favorite actor, but he's the guy that I, I emulate. I'm always trying to get in touch with the weakness and in touch of the pain and be willing to not have to be cool when I'm on stage, you know, not, not to try and drop the veneer that you use to protect yourself. That says, this is only a performance. And he just he just did that naturally. He he did it because he believed in it, but he also did it naturally, and he brought out the best in everyone around him. And what, what a, how much nicer thing can you say about a guy? The fact that he was a really nice guy that people loved and missed desperately, you know, the fact that he was a really good friend, and it all of that just makes it yeah. more of a miracle. So yeah. All right. So. Um... Did we miss your favorite John Kazam moment? Um, then you certainly we did. I'll be impressed. Please <laughs> yeah, dial, call, let we, us know. We, yeah, let us know at uh, the movie show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook at Ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And uh, you can email us at askjoelandryan at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, and we, um, yeah, and the, he, he lived a, an amazing a life and he really, uh, just what an absolute bright shining star that um, obviously was diminished too quickly. And um, yeah, boy, it uh, just the five films there, five, these, these five films. He broke our heart. Joe. Yeah. That's going to do it for us for this week for the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Go watch yourself a John Cazal film. You won't be disappointed. We promise you that. All right, everybody. Take care. Until next week. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out. Stan, please, I'm trying to work. I'm tired of mostly everything. <laughs>